Well, let's open our Bibles to Revelation 5. I'm so thrilled to get you the ninth verse because in the ninth verse we have two elements coming together in one place that most of us in our minds keep kind of apart. In fact, for most Christians, the, the holy wrath of God in flaming fire taking vengeance upon sinners is over here. And what we just did this morning, worship and rejoicing in our Redeemer is over here. And we kind of, we don't usually mix those two. But in verse 9, they're squashed together in a, in a very incredible way. And it's kind of the, the introduction to the rest of the book. And what I'm going to just do is survey with you how chapter 4 and 5 bridge between the church on earth, you know, the seven churches we looked at for so long, and, and goes to the scene in heaven, Revelation 4 and 5, and right in the middle of that, in chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to see God segues into the purpose of the tribulation. The context of the tribulation is seen in the, the merging of our worship and our prayers. You're going to learn this morning that God actually does collect every prayer of every believer. And he pours them out, those who obediently have done what he asked us to pray for, he pours them out at a propitious moment in the future. So all that's in verse 9. It's the context that God gives for the tribulation. And, and, and this merging actually fits together so much. It explains uh, why God tarries with his wrath. How come God can let evil run amok throughout the universe, and especially through our world? And how come sometimes what we pray for, nothing happens? See, he explains all that in this chapter. It's wonderful. So if you're there, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, and let's stand together for the reading of God's word, and we'll remain standing till we pray and ask him to just bless our hearts with this truth. Look at this center part. I'll emphasize it with my voice as we get to it. And they sang a new song saying, and here it is, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. By the way, that's what all of chapter 6 onward of the book of Revelation is about. Why? The next part of the verse. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The scroll and the seals represent the wrath of God poured out upon those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that is, is worshipped tantamount or, or side by side parallel with the redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And, and only in this verse do we see how God's, how, how his wrath and his redeeming love can meet and be reconciled in the minds of us who alone understand life because God has explained it to us. But let's bow and ask him to open our hearts. Father in heaven, I thank you for this ninth verse. I thank you for how you introduced the context to us of all the horrors that, that we've heard about so many times of the tribulation yet you give us an understanding of why you do all that and, and who alone can break that first seal that springs forth the, the treasured up wrath that you have against sin finally to be poured out on this world. Oh Lord, I pray that you would just calibrate our minds to think biblically, to understand the truth, and then most of all to 
to be able to very gratefully at the end of this day be so thankful we're redeemed. Illumine our hearts, we pray, to your word. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, the contrast of all the tribulation horrors with the serenity of heaven is what we find. It's kind of like a storm front. When we used to live in Oklahoma, uh, you know, it's so flat out there, you can see storms, you know, about three days away. And so we would watch, and you could see the, the gulf moist air coming up, and you could see the cold coming down from Michigan, air coming down, and they would meet right there over the plains. And that storm front was amazing as the, the thunderheads, the cumulonimbus or whatever we were taught eons ago in school, started just shooting straight up in that anvil shape. And you knew a, a boomer, we used to call him, was coming. And it used to thunder so much there that, that even new houses, the windows would go, you know, they would creak and rattle because the ground shook from the boomer thunderstorms. Well, that's what you see, kind of like a, a storm front forming. And in chapter 5, verse 9, the thundercloud just starts going straight up. And, and let me show you what I mean. If you back up to verse 1, because I want to scan with you the bigger picture. In fact, we're going to look from verse 1 of chapter 5 all the way through to uh, the return of Christ just in a short time. But what we see, chapter 5 opens with God the Father on the throne. In his right hand is this seven-sealed scroll. Now, scroll, the word, occurs 32 times in the Bible. Eight of them are right here. The rest are sprinkled around hardly close to in proximity to any of the others, but there is a mother load. I mean, there's just a concentration of scroll, 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 scroll here. And all of a sudden, God introduces to us this elusive scroll that we see in Ezekiel and we see a little bit talked about in Daniel chapter 12. And all of a sudden, God explains to us that he has a plan. And he starts showing us how he's going to unfold that plan. But, but look at verse 1. It says, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father sitting on the throne, is this scroll, so there's the first time it occurs, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Look at the end of verse 2. Who is worthy to open the scroll? There's the second time it's mentioned. Verse 3, and no one in heaven and earth was, or under the earth, in verse 3, was able to open the scroll. There's the third time. So verse 4, John says, I wept much because no one was worthy to open and read the, and there's the scroll the fourth time. Look at the end of verse 5. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll. And you notice tied with this scroll is the next little wording there. It says, and loose its seven seals. There's something significant about this scroll that God has this massive scroll under his right hand sitting on the throne and no one can be found to loose it. And so then look at Verse 7, then he, that's Christ, the lamb, slain uh, in his wonderful, risen, glorious power, he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So God the Father takes that scroll, hands it to Christ, and then, verse 8, when he takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down. So immediately this precipitates the, what we've been talking about, all this worship going on in heaven, all of this a cacophony of, of, of praise and the falling down and the thundering and everything going on. And then look, verse 9. We're, these are believers now. 
Angels don't sing, remember? They haven't sang since creation. Job says they sang a creation not since the fall. Angels don't sing. They're on silence, you know? They, they can't sing. The redeemed sing. That's us. That's believers. That's those who have been born again, washed in the blood. They, that's the redeemed, sing a new song. But what's our song about? Look, look what it says in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and what? Open the seals. You see, we need to have a whole new reorientation of this concept of the judgment of God against sin. And we need to realize that it's something that we are an integral part of God fulfilling that plan. So, that's the quick quick view. Now, scroll that I just read to you eight times is interesting. It's the, the Greek word biblion, which we get biblos, which is the cover title of this book we're calling the Bible, because biblos, biblios, this word, meant book. But in the first century, book was a biblos, a scroll. Later in the first century, the Romans evolved, and on into the second and more in the third, into a codex. You know what a codex is? It's a flat, uh, square, or rectangular sheets that are sewn or bound together on an edge. This is a codex. This is a Biblos, a book. But we call this a book, and we call that a scroll. So that's why it's interesting, the, the transmission of concepts through language. You have to look at what it meant then. And what it meant then is that God the Father was sitting on his throne, and he's got this big rolled-up thing that has seven seals, and each seal reveals, as you unroll it, a little more of the plan. And so that concept helps us to understand. In fact, this is the same kind. There was a uh, scroll that went to the seven churches, and, and they unrolled that. But this scroll contains the plan of God for earth's future. That, that's what we see. In fact, I want you to, to see what it says in, in chapter 6. And when the Lamb opened, I mean, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, boom, something happens. You see, this scroll is tied to God unleashing his pent-up wrath against sin. Now again, worship, wrath. Kind of like two channels. You, we don't merge those two in our minds very easily. Most likely this scroll is the same scroll that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 2 verses 9 and 10. It's also probably the scroll that, that Daniel saw that was sealed up till the end. Sealed up. And now we're seeing the seals broken at the end. It's referring to the plan of God to take back the kingdom of the earth. Temporarily, this kingdom was taken over by Satan. He is a usurper. Uh, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And so Satan is the god of this world. Jesus said all people are born... See, that's where we have to be so careful in sharing the gospel. Jesus said everybody is born of their father, the devil. So that means everyone is born a rebel and doomed to destruction. Even children of saints are born that way. It, we live in a side of the state that people got that a little mixed up, and that's why their children aren't getting saved, because they're not told they need to get saved, that they are born lost and they need to personally receive Christ. But we are 
under the domination of the evil one. In fact, 1 John 5, the last verse of the fifth chapter, verse 21 says, we're all in the arms of the evil one. All of us are, 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 are held by him until Jesus comes and redeems us and pulls us out from underneath his dominion. And Paul says this, we're transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so that plan to end the rebellion is what this scroll is about. Now, some people call this scroll the title deed of the universe, and I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, except it's a whole lot more. I've never seen title deeds that have battle plans in them. Title deeds just have legal descriptions. This is a little more than a title deed. This is the actual plan for the reversal and reconquest of this kingdom of darkness back by God. As we watch the scene of worship in heaven, we've been studying the elements of redemption. That's, we start in chapter 4, remember we saw the throne and the holy atmosphere and we saw the responsive nature and we've gone over and over that. And last week we got to the fourth one, that, that all of the worship of heaven centers around the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. This morning we're just starting to look at the fifth element of worship. And you know what that worship is? It's the backdrop for God's pouring out his wrath on the rebels. Because his wrath is righteous, because it is just, and because it is holy, we can rejoice. Because you know what God's doing? He's righting all wrongs. You see, it appears from our perspective that people get away with everything. I mean, you can be a murderer and serve just a little, or they'll find a technicality and they don't even put you in jail. And it's like, ah, oh, how did they get away with that? You know, and God says, don't worry, I'm going to right all wrongs. So that's the context he's giving us. Now I want you to skip down to the opening of chapter 6 because this scroll that first is at the right hand of the Father in his right hand that he hands in chapter 5 to the Lamb, this scroll is the beginning of a three-part battle plan that God has. The scroll has seven seals. The seventh seal launches seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet launches seven bowls. And what I just gave you is the outline of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 20. But let's just look at it piece by piece. First in chapter 6. When we see the scroll opened in chapter 6, it, it represents the unfolding of God's plan for his wrath to start pouring out in three parts. First the seven seals, 6 through 8. Then the seven trumpets, 8 through 14. And finally the seven bowls, 15 through 19, with the kind of mop-up operation in chapter 20. Now, as it says in verse 1, the lamb opened, chapter 6, verse 1, one of the seals. You know what it instantly happens? God's plan just starts into action. Keep going down to verse 3. When he opened the second seal, boom, there goes the second living creature say, come and see, and this horse uh, is unleashed. Then you keep going down to, to verse 5. The third seal, boom, another uh, just launching of, of God's plan. And, and you can go on through verse 7, the, the fourth seal of chapter 6, verse 9 of chapter 6, the fifth seal, uh, verse 12, the sixth seal. Now you have to zip over to chapter 8, verse 1. There's the seventh seal. So uh, there's an introduction in chapter 7. Uh, there are these little parentheses that, that are explaining things. Chapter 7 is God, at, at the launch of the tribulation hour, sends in a new set of of evangelists. Oh, who were the former evangelists, the ones he's pulled out? You know how we're withdrawing people from Afghanistan and a while back Iraq? God withdraws his 
his evangelists in the world and brings them home. That's why we're up there worshiping. And he inserts a brand new group. That's what chapter 7 is, and it's fascinating. They're the Jews. They're going back to their original calling. Now, look at what's going on from chapter 8, verse 1, when, when this, this seventh seal is opened, seven angels, verse 2, standing before God, are given seven trumpets. They start blowing their trumpets. You can read each of the trumpet judgments, which culminates in chapter 11, verse 15. Look what it says there. When the seventh angel sounded... So now we've gone all the way through the seven seals. The seventh seal introduces the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is being sounded. And so that's those trumpet judgments. It's a prelude to the final set of judgments known as the bowl judgments. Now, turn over. I mean, it reverberates. That that seventh trumpet keeps reverberating and a lot goes on. But turn over to chapter 15 of Revelation in verse 7. Now we find the final set. You know, you heard of the triple, you know, crown or whatever of horse racing. God has a triple, three-part three conclusion to history on planet Earth. And here, here is the last of the three. It's chapter 15 and verse 7. The bowls of wrath are being prepared in 15.7. And as they're introduced, these seven bowls ignite the final conflagration that leads up to Christ's second coming, which is chapter 19, he, he once and for all in chapter 20 shows that, a, that living in a perfect environment does not make perfect people. If you put a sinner in a perfect environment, they ruin it. And I'm not talking about, you know, saving whales. I'm talking about sin permeates. I mean, they probably take care of the animals, but they are still horribly rebellious to God. And so the the second coming of Christ in chapter 19, he comes down, he destroys all the rebels, he only populates the kingdom with the redeemed, but the redeemed have children. And we are always one generation away from extinction in Christ's body among the redeemed because if if the children, if the next generation do not embrace Christ, they're in rebellion. And that's exactly what the millennium's about. There's a thousand years of childbearing and of children having children, of children's children having children. Can you imagine how full the earth will be with this no poisonous anything, no carnivorous anything, no, the weeds are pulled back. I mean, you can just throw stuff, seeds out. You don't even have to go to the Shuring greenhouse to buy it. It just grows like a greenhouse in your own little place. And the whole earth is going to be like the Garden of Eden. And yet the people rebel. And that's why in chapter 20, I call it the mop-up. The Lord just says, enough is enough. And it says he incinerates everyone except for the redeemed that are in the new city of Jerusalem, the epicenter of the world. So, uh, but, but look at chapter 15, verse 7. And one of the four creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. But what are in those bowls? Full of the wrath of God. Now, this sequence of seals, trumpets, and bowls always makes me wonder, how, how can you square what I just said, where if, if the tribulation started today, that means if we don't make it to lunch and Christ returns and takes us out of here and the tribulation started today, 3.7, or actually 3.507 billion people would die. You know how many that is? It's like having the Holocaust of World War II 
happening on almost a daily basis around the world. That's how bad the tribulation is. It's like Hitler's Holocaust, hunting and gassing and burning all the Jews, happening on about a 22-hour, 20-some-hour basis globally. That's, that's how bad it's going to be. How does that square with singing, holy, holy, holy? I mean, doesn't that sound a little incongruent? Well, let's back up to think about that because if you look at Revelation 5.8, I want to show you the key to understanding this. It's actually the verse we read last week, okay? But it explains it. When he had taken the scroll, verse 8, the four living creatures fell down, the 24 elders fall down, Revelation 5, 8, before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the what? What does your Bible say? Prayers of the saints. Ah, now we finally can see how God connects all this. What we see twice mentioned are the collected prayers of the saints. Now, keep going to chapter 8, verse 3. I want to show you the second mention of it. Revelation 8, 3, and another angel came having a golden censer. He came and stood at the altar. I look up from your Bibles for a minute. Did you realize how valuable the Old Testament is? If you didn't have the Old Testament, you wouldn't even understand what's going on here. You understand that the Old Testament, God had Moses go up onto the mountain, and up on the mountain, God showed him a series of engineering specs for building a sanctuary on earth that was a copy of a sanctuary in heaven. And we see the angels coming in and out of a heavenly temple that has the same altar that Moses made a copy of. You understand that? I mean, all of a sudden, the book of Hebrews, whoa, is very important for prophecy because we understand what's going on in heaven in the heavenly sanctuary and we see what was going on on earth and all of a sudden we start connecting all these things these angels are doing. But what does it keep going in chapter 8, verse 3? Look what else it says. Not only is there this altar in the heavenly sanctuary, he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Revelation shows us God as he's finally answering centuries of collected prayers. You understand that? Did you see where the golden altar is? It says it's in front of the throne. Do you realize prayer, prayer catapults us. Every time we bother to pray, we instantly are coming to a spot right in front of the throne of God. It's called the golden altar where the prayers of the saints are collected. But what is God doing? God is, is finally launching the answer to centuries of prayers. You go, am I supposed to be praying about the tribulation? I mean, that's what's happening. I mean, connect all this. The censer, look, look what he does with it. Verse 4, And the smoke and the incense of the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel, verse 5, took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And this is the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And it's somehow tied to our prayers. Now you notice what I said, that, that God is here launching the answer to centuries of prayers. What prayer did God ask all of his servants to always have in the backdrop of all their praying? Do you remember that? We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer. 
But for just a minute, let's turn back. I want to show you something interesting. It's, the Bible connects everything. Look at, at chapter 6 of the book of Matthew. Chapter 6 of Matthew. You know, people say, I thought we were studying Revelation. Yeah, but Revelation is like the circuit board of the whole Bible. Every verse connects there somehow. It's the most interconnected book in the Bible. And what we have in, in Revelation 5, 8 and 8, 3 through 5 there, in this whole incense and prayer thing, is 20 plus centuries of God's servants doing what chapter 6 of Matthew says. Now, Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, starts in chapter 5, ends in chapter 7. We're right smack in the middle of it. And this is what he says in verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. So Jesus speaks in a, a Greek verb form that's the one that demands a response. Have you ever had someone say something to you and they go, like you're sitting at a table and the waitress walks up and says, uh, would you like that? That isn't rhetorical that you go, she'll keep looking at you. Would you like that? Sir, would you like that? You know, uh, do you want the salad bar? Would you like some more coffee? You know, you say something to someone that you're asking for a response. And I can always tell when I can't hear when the waitress keeps smiling and, and saying the same thing. Finally, I go, what? She says, uh, you know, and she'll say what she was trying to say because it's so loud. You know, the older you get, everything just, you can't hear anything anymore. Well, God can hear. And he has asked us to say something, and he's listening for it and collecting it. And what does he say? After this manner, therefore, pray ye. And look, you all know the words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so he says, he says, I want you to have this pattern. I want you to constantly, when you come into prayer, before you do anything else, I want you to reorient and focus your minds and your hearts on who it is you're talking to. I am seated on the throne. I have the scroll right next to me on my right hand. I have the one who died in your place, the lamb that was slain, standing in front of me. I have all of your prayers coming to this golden altar, and I'm collecting every one of them. And this is what I want you to hear. This is what I want to hear from you. What's the next part of the Lord's Prayer? It's what we're all supposed to be praying. Thy kingdom, what? Come. Did you know that's what it says a little bit later in Revelation? The kingdoms of our God and of his Christ have come. Did you know for the last 20 centuries, every obedient believer who has taken Christ at his word, who has followed what the Great Commission says, that we're supposed to, every new believer, we're supposed to tell them what Christ commanded us to do. And part of that command is, after this manner, therefore, pray ye, we're asking God to bring his kingdom. This is the answer that we're seeing in Revelation to 20 centuries of believers saying, thy kingdom come. We are offended that you are not honored. We are offended that your truth is suppressed. We are offended that, that more than any other time in history, God's truth is suppressed because God's truth has never been more readily available than our generation. And, and the unrighteous, ungodly world is suppressing it, mocking it. And we go, that is awful. See, our prayers do matter. And God is doing something with them. For 20 centuries, God's servants have prayed obediently, thy kingdom come. And now all these prayers have been collected by God. They're in bowls at his feet. There's an altar in front of him. They're scooped up and they're hurled out. And the wrath begins. But the mystery has always been, why does God wait so long? 
how come he's still letting us say, thy kingdom come, and it's not? Did you know that's one of the most difficult things we have to deal with? That people say, if your God is so great, and if, if he's so mighty and powerful, why does he allow the, the people of Sudan to starve to death? And why does he allow, I mean, you can just spend the whole morning talking about all the bad stuff. Why? That's always been the problem. What's amazing is, and this is just a little, a little by path. Someone called it a rabbit path. It's not a rabbit trail. It's truth. Did you know this? If you took every recorded, written down sermon from the first three centuries of the Christian church, from the disciples and apostles of Christ through the end of the third century, if you took all the sermons, there's only one book of the whole Bible that those sermons contain every single word of one book of this Bible. One of the 66 books is totally reproduced in the early church's sermons. And it's not Romans, and it's not Ephesians, and it's not, I could go through the others. Do you know which book they preached on every word of? Revelation. Did you know that? See, they understood that all of the torturous persecutions they were going through and all of their prayers for the Lord's kingdom to come, they realized that those were being treasured up in heaven. See, they had a proper view of the end. And they knew as they went through the tribulation that they went through of the Roman emperors that God was treasuring up his wrath until the moment that he, in his eternal plan, had decided, and they were going to patiently wait for it. But a great Bible teacher of years back said this, W.A. Criswell, he pastored First Baptist Church of Dallas for almost 50 years. He preached 4,000 messages directly from God's word. When he was bumping into this passage in Revelation 5, I just want to read you three paragraphs of what he said because it's beautiful. Uh, his words on this moment of God's wrath, Criswell said, the mystery of God is the long delay of our Lord in taking the kingdom to himself. You know, his kingdom didn't come. And establishing righteousness on the earth. The mystery of God is seen in thousands of years in which sin and death run riot. The pages of history from the time of the first murder of Abel until this present hour are written in blood, filled with tears, and covered with death. The mystery is the delay of God in taking the kingdom unto himself. That is the most inexplicable mystery our minds could dream of. The mystery of the presence of evil. And many people have wrestled with this. But Criswell continues. For these thousands of years, God has allowed Satan to wrap his vicious, slimy, filthy, cruel tentacles around human life and around this earth. Now, if you ever knew Criswell, I could just see him saying those things. I mean, white-haired. I mean, he was very flamboyant, you know, pastor at Dallas, you know. Uh, and, and, and when he would get excited, he would come right down. I've been at his church, and he'd slide right down on one knee, right on... I can't even do it, and I'm 56. He could do it in his 70s. He'd slide down on one knee with his Bible and just shout at the people. He prayed on his knees right on the front of the platform. Most unbelievable fellow. I can just hear him saying these words, but listen to what he says. Is God indifferent? Does God not know evil is here? Is God not able to cope with it? Oh, the mystery of the delay of God. That mystery has brought more stumbling to the faith of God's people than any other experience in all of life. The infidel, the atheist, the agnostic, the unbeliever laugh, mocking us 
and yet God lets them mock and laugh. The enemies of righteousness and the enemies of all that we hold dear rise up and increase in power. They spread blood, they spread darkness over the face of the earth. And we wonder, where is God? Our missionaries are slain, our churches are burned. People on this earth by uncounted millions and millions are oppressed. They live in despair. And God just looks on. He seemingly does not intervene. He does not say anything. He just doesn't move. Sin develops and goes on and on. Oh, the mystery of the delay of the Lord God. But somewhere beyond the starry sky there stands a herald with a trumpet in his hand and at the decree of the Lord God Almighty there is a day and there is an hour and there is a moment. There is an elected time when the angel shall sound and the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of our Christ. But why does he delay? It's never answered in the Bible. But God is delaying primarily so that we can do what we're called to do. Let me show you what we're supposed to do in the delay. Turn back to the book of Acts. Now you're in Matthew. Go to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 17. And, and some of you have kind of paused in your turning. This is a good one. You ought to turn to this one. Uh, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22, because Christ's three roles are always visible in the Word of God. And we have to realize this during the pause. The pause, Peter said, is because God is not willing that any should perish and that all should come to the knowledge of the truth and should come to repentance. And so during this pause, we're supposed to do something. Now, I picked Acts 17, 22, because here, as Paul presents the gospel to pagans, they say, why are you using that? Because America is becoming increasingly our post-Christian culture is no longer moored to biblical truth. I mean, people that weren't saved used to know Bible allusions. They knew things from the Scripture. In fact, if you read British literature, you have to have a little Bible degree to understand half of British literature because so many allusions in literature are from the Bible. Did you know it's interesting to hear newscasters commenting on something someone said in a literary form, and they don't realize they're talking about something from the Bible. You know, like the handwritings on the wall, or, you know, he has feet of clay, or, you know, whatever. There's so many biblical allusions that people don't know any longer. They're from the Bible. So how do you approach people that don't know the Bible? Well, Paul shows us. Jesus has three specific roles given to him as God the Son by God the Father. And Paul uses his message on Mars Hill to explain the gospel to pagans using those three roles that Jesus has. In Acts 17, Paul demonstrates this, starting in verse 22. What he says is, Jesus is always three things. He's always the creator, he's always the savior, and if you don't acknowledge him as those, he will become your judge. Now, look at the text, verse 22 he starts it, but in verse 24, he starts explaining the Creator. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And he just bashes their whole idolatrous forming of a God. And he says, there is a Creator. So that, he starts introducing the Savior in verse 27. And what he says is, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Wow. What he said is, the creator God is down here. 
And you, and you know what the picture, this is a, this is a fascinating picture that, that maybe will change how you look at who lives next to you in the apartment next door or in the house next door or who's in the cubicle where you work next door or, or who sits next to you in, in class or whatever. Did you know if they're not saved, look, look at verse 27, in hopes that they should seek the Lord and they might grope for him. Grope? What is that? It's back to how the Bible always describes the world. There's two kinds of people in the world, those who have Christ and those who don't. Those who have Christ have been given sight. Those who do not have Christ are blind. Now, they look normal. They, they have physical eyes. They just can't see spiritually. So if you could see them spiritually, if we could all put on you know, 3D glasses or whatever to see spiritually, do you know what you'd see with the person sitting next to you, lean back in their chair in their cubicle at work? They're sitting there thinking they're going like this. They're saying, I wonder if there's a God out here. I mean, I heard, when I was a kid, I heard about him, but I, I don't know if any of that's true. And I heard on the news, the Bible's not true. And I wonder, well, I know a Christian, I wonder if that God, they serve. And, and when you're, like, I just, I could kick myself. I was recently, when I was traveling, I was sitting next to all these Hindus. I think we're having a reunion of India or something, you know, and they were just all surrounding me, you know, with the, the whole thing. And I was thinking, you know, it was a short flight, and I thought, should I get in to share in the gospel with them or not? They probably don't speak English anyway, you know, and so even though they were talking to each other in English, you know, I was going through all this in my mind, and the plane landed, and I was saved from having to try and share the gospel. But you know what I thought about as I was, as I was reading this week? My mind went back to that airplane ride surrounded by all those Hindus, and you know what I thought? They were all like this. They were groping after God. And so that means when you go through life, you are, you are living with, if you're a follower of Christ, born again, he opened your eyes, Acts 26, 18 says, turned you from darkness to light. The lights came on and all of a sudden you see everybody around you in the world and they're all right on the edge of this precipice dropping down into the pit and, and after that the judgment in hell and they're blind and they're just crawling along, groping, looking for God and they're ready to fall right over the edge. That gives a whole different view of why the Lord left us here. At this time, in God's plan, he is not sending the angel through the sky. He doesn't have 144,000. He has just us. And we live around people that are trying to figure out God. And what we're supposed to do is say, look, look at verse 27. Seek the Lord and hope you might grope for him and find him. He's not far from you. For in him we live and move, verse 28, and have our being. And verse 30, but this time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And you are a sinner, and you have no hope, and you have an incurable illness, and there's only one antidote, and that antidote is a person. And I want to, I know him personally. I have known him intimately and he lives within me and I'd like to introduce him to you because I am a sinner, I know what you're going through and he can deliver you. Do you see why we're here? And, and what we need to do is realize how much we've been forgiven and start sharing it. And what, what happens if they won't listen? Well, he covers that. Look at verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is the third role of Christ. The creator is the savior who will be the judge. And he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and given assurance to this by raising him from the dead. And so when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
that's what will happen. I mean, you go out and you tell someone, say, hey, I know you're feeling after God. It's Jesus Christ. And they go, eh, don't believe it. That's fine. But look what else happens. Some mocked, but others said, verse 32, we want to hear more about this. And Paul found the elect. Do you know how you find the elect? Preach the gospel and those that respond in repentance and faith are the elect. That's the only way. You can't pull their shirt up. You know, there isn't an E on them. You know, they will respond to the gospel because God is in charge of the elect. We're responsible for sharing with the feelers that are groping trying to find God in their blindness. Well, when mankind refuses to acknowledge their creator, when they refuse their only savior, then Jesus becomes their judge. Now, let's finish up in Revelation 5. This is finish up there. That, boy, that's a comfort to a lot of people. Finish up. Revelation chapter 5. And look at verse 8, because I want to, or verse 9, I want to show you something that's fascinating, and this is where we're going to roll, Lord willing, in next week into communion. But I want to show you in Revelation 5 the context of the judgments and sinful, rebellious humanity and the worship of heaven. But in verse 9, the theme of that worship, as the scroll book is being taken, as Jesus is getting ready to start breaking those scrolls and pouring out the wrath, what does verse 9 say? And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain and have been redeemed. Now, what I want to introduce you is what I call redemption's three purposes. Do you know why I know that redemption has three purposes? Because, look back down in your Bible at verse 9, the word redeemed there, that word in English has a Greek word sitting underneath it. But did you know other words in English that say redeemed have different words sitting underneath them? Did you know that there are actually three different incredibly huge Greek words that are translated by one incredibly unique English word, redeem? But the three words have a great huge impact on why God saved us. Let me just show you this one, and we'll pick up with these next week. Redemption's three purposes. The, the word redeemed in Revelation 5, 9 is just one of three words in the New Testament translated by English and redeem, by the word redeem. Each of these three words that God chose tells us one facet of what Christ's cross redeemed us for. Isn't that interesting? Th- this is just the first one. I mean, this one is fascinating. This word is the Greek word agorazo. Okay, here's a quick geography lesson, Okay. This is north and south on a map. And if you looked at any Roman town, it would have a big north and south road called the Cardo Maximus. This is east and west. And there would be a second road in that Roman town called the Ducomanus, where the Ducomanus, going east and west, intersects with the Cardo Maximus, going north and south. At that center point was a square. It was called the Agora, or in English, marketplace or forum like the Roman Forum. The Roman Forum in Rome is where the Cardo and the Ducomanus cross and intersect, and it becomes the heart. Cardo, Cardia. It's the heart of the city. Well, in the Cardo, they would sell everything. They'd sell onions and bagels, and, you know, you could buy aged this and that. But this word, agorazo, which is right there in verse 9, you have redeemed us. It's the word agorazo. Came to mean... As the Roman Empire grew, 
it came to mean, and, and the literal definition out of the Greek dictionary is to buy a slave from the marketplace. So agorazo became synonymous with buying a slave. Now, real quickly, I know you're, you've been listening far longer than, than, you know, necessary on Memorial Day, but let me just tell one more thing before we go. For us, slavery is just, you know, it's bad. We don't even think about it. It's terrible. It's in the history. And, uh. Think of slavery like buying an appliance. In the first century, you would go to the market to buy someone to wash your clothes. So you'd look them over and see if they look like they'd be good at clothes washing. Or you'd buy someone to sew your clothes. Or you'd buy someone to take care of your kids. They were like appliances. They came with a title, a gar- uh, you know, a warranty, no less. And it had a price on it and everything. And so you'd look over the slaves and you'd find one that did just what you needed. And, and you know, you'd kind of say, do you know how to cook? You know, what do you cook with? You know, and you'd, you would buy one for a specific purpose. Now, look back at Revelation 5.9 and think about what this is saying. Because the depth of the meaning of this word explains why we're singing in heaven. He says, and you have redeemed us to God. You, Christ, came to the slave market. You looked over the whole world and all, the, all of us were blind slaves. And you looked at us and you found and bought us for a specific purpose. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace have you been saved through faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for very special good works. Did you know the Lord came and looked at us and said, I am buying you for a purpose. I looked over the slave market and I picked you. And I picked you for a very specific purpose. Now this comes out, one, one more verse, turn back to 1 Corinthians 6, because it's the other time this word occurs in the New Testament that I want you to see. 1 Corinthians 6.20. And what the Lord says is this, the depth of meaning is that we are redeemed and bought for God. God bought each of us, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for himself. That should permeate our lives. But now Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And Paul is sitting in the leather department. Did you know in the ancient world, I told you about the cardo, I told you about the forum. The forum is where they did sports and where they bought and sold stuff. And the best workshops of the city were always facing in on the forum. And in Corinth, you can go there today, you can take a tour over there, right out of Athens, just take a bus, 45 minutes, and you get there, and they'll show you where the leather workers, Paul, all of the leather workers gathered in one corner on the north side of the Agora. And Paul was sitting there working on his tent making with leather, and he was looking out at the forum, and he says this, for you were bought at a price. And he was looking out at those slaves being bought and sold. And he says, you were bought and the Lord paid the redemption price with the blood of his own son and now owns me because he bought me for a purpose. And what does he want me to do? Look at the end of verse 20. Therefore, because he went to the slave market of sin and bought you, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The first lesson of redemption is redemption means God, I was bought to be God's servant that glorifies him. If, if nothing else sticks with you, you and I were redeemed. Jesus came to the slave market and said, I'll take that one. And he bought us. In exchange, the, the exchange price for us was he had to pay our debt to the wrath of God. He paid with his own blood.
And he bought us to be an appliance, to have a very specific use. And that use is glorifying him. Wow. There is a reason we're here. We're here as God's servant. And we'll pick up with that at communion next week. Let's all stand for a word of prayer. As you stand, some of you might be saying what someone said to me in the visitor line. After the service, we have a wonderful reception across the hall in the fellowship center. And, and someone came up in the hall and they said, this is maybe six or eight weeks ago, they came to me and they said, you know what? Not one thing you said this morning has ever happened to me. Do you know what that was code for? They're not a Christian. What they were telling me is none of that stuff that the Bible talks about has ever happened to them. If that's how you are this morning, it means you're like this. And you're trying to figure out what, where God is and what he wants. And you know what? The Redeemer, Jesus, is actually here. And he's actually wanting you to reach out for him. And he said, if you reach out for me, you'll find me. That's, that's why I love to witness. I love to see Jesus find people. We're just the one that shares a few words from his word. And their faces, their lives, everything changes. This morning, if you've never found him, after I pray, there are going to be elders and Titus two godly women that are here. And they would love to open God's word, explain to you how you can call in the name of the Lord. Or you say, I've already done that. It just doesn't seem to be working. They are good at tune-ups. They will help you get recalibrated to walking with the Lord. On this Memorial Day, the real memorial is when Christ raised up his cross. And he said, I redeemed you to glorify me. Let's bow before him in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the song of the redeemed. And all of us who are redeemed love to proclaim it. That's why we share the gospel. And I pray that you would help us this morning to respond to your word, to let your spirit work in our heart what you want to accomplish as we yield our lives to you. May we glorify you with our lives you bought. In the precious name of Jesus we pray and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.